Well, I was thinking about it this week. I was looking at this passage, and this is a whole, we're in this series, and uh, we're taking a whole chapter 14. There are 26 verses that, or 25 verses that were not read, and I'm going to re- be referring to them, but uh, there's a whole, this is a huge amount of teaching uh, to be done uh, in, a, in a short amount of time. As I was looking at it, uh, I said to myself, how many times have I heard this, as I was, I finally was realizing what this whole passage is about. How many times have I heard it? How many times have I heard a conversation that kind of goes like this? Me. Hey, brother so-and-so, we've missed you in church in recent days. Sister, you you know, you've deprived us of your smiling face. Where you been? And after, you know, a little uneasy circling and dancing around, uh, basically, it lands somewhere around here. Uh, now, Pastor, <laughs> Pastor, <laughs> you certainly would agree, wouldn't you, that you could worship God at the beach as well as you could worship Him in a stuffy building? Would you agree with that, Pastor? Now, when that happens, I feel like uh, you know a person has walked up to me and said, you know, asked me a question. I have a question for you. I want a yes or no answer. You know, are you still beating your wife? Are you, you know, is that, no, oh, so you stopped, that's good, I'm glad you stopped beating, yes, you haven't stopped, no, I've never beaten my wife, oh, well, that's good, I'm glad that you've, you know, turned over a new leaf, see, there's no good answer there, what social scientists call a question like that is a complex question fallacy, I call it something else, I call it a loaded question. And often in arguments, I have fallen for loaded questions and have found myself kind of back on my heels. Can you worship God at the beach? Can you worship God at the lake? Can you worship God in the woods? The simple answer is what? Yes, you can. Psalm 19.1 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. We can worship God anywhere. We can worship God in the woods as we look at his creation. We can worship God in the city because, frankly, folks, you know, people think, well, we've got to get close to God. Let's get close to nature. You are closer to God in a city than you are out in the middle of the woods because who is the creation of God? Who is in the image of God? People are in the image of God, and you never have a higher concentration of the image of God than when you go to a city. So you can praise God wherever you are. You can praise God in your car, at work. Changing diapers, vacuuming the carpet. Can you? Yes. But you see, look, I'm a, I'm a, I am a tad bit cynical when I hear someone say, you can worship God just as well away from the gathering of God's people as when you're together. And I think there's, a, there's one or two things going on. There's one or two things going on with them. Sometimes I think they're just making excuses to be disobedient. Sometimes I just think of that. I look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, the writer says this, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, since that's when a lot of this stuff spurring on stuff happens, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. What's the day? The day is when Jesus Christ shall return and, you know, I guess every older person forever has been saying, I think it's soon. I'm not going to say it like this, but I'm going to say, you know what, I think it's soon. I think it's soon. Anyway, uh, maybe it's not, but, you know, I think it is. Hey, but look, I, I don't know about that. Here's what I do know. This is what I know. I know that throughout history, it is a fact that God has had a way of meeting with his people when his people have met together to meet with him. Now, maybe part of the answer why the back deck on a Sunday morning with coffee in one hand and a fresh New York Times in the other has become an acceptable substitute house of worship is because when people have come into this house, they have come with very, very low expectations. And folks, you know as well as I do that many times when people go somewhere expecting to be bored, they are quietly delighted when their low expectations are met. Maybe that's why. The beach is as good as this place. Maybe it's not that at all. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's that they just have no idea why it's important to be together regularly in the same way that they regularly brush their teeth, regularly walk the dog, regularly mow the lawn. Maybe, Maybe it's that. 
Maybe people don't know that worship is about lifting God up in our hearts like we did. Were you able to do that a little bit just a little while ago and, and continue to do so? Boy, I sure could, you know, in a, in a wonderful way. Lifting him up in our minds, putting him in a place that he deserves to be all the time. And that when I gather with other Christians, his call to me is not just to do that for myself, catch this, but it is to help the body do the same thing so that God who visits his people will visit all the people and not just me. See, it's incumbent upon me to grab someone else by the hand and help them put God in his place. In the context of Paul's teaching on the gifts given to the church that we've been talking about, I think Paul is saying that when I get together with my people, my brothers, my sisters, my giftedness is not just to enrich my own spiritual experience, which will happen, but to enrich the experience of my brothers and sisters so that they will hear from God and they will put God in his proper place in their lives too. And the thing is this, this is a bonus. When I do that, when that's my chief concern, God has a way of blessing me too. He just does. And so in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthians that they needed to get their act together in two specific areas that were not bringing people together, were not setting Christ apart in their hearts, but were literally separating people. They were keeping people from worship instead of fostering an environment where worship could be encouraged. And so he talks in two areas, in the areas of tongues and in the area of teaching, two gifts given by the Holy Spirit. Now, the first time in Scripture that we see this gift of tongues is in Acts chapter 2. I hope you can read that. And it says this, when the day of Pentecost came, they, who's they? Christ's disciples, Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, many, many other men and women, some say upwards of 120 we know, could have been in this large room, and they were all together in one place. Verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. And um, what can you describe it as? Uh, I guess a train, if, if you live 25 feet away from the tracks and it's barreling through, maybe if you're in the, you know, the root cellar and a, a, a twister goes right above your head, it was kind of sounding, kind of, kind of an experience like that. Uh, they were all together in one place, and a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. When you say, well, what does that mean? You know, they, they, they were filled with the Holy Spirit began to speak in other tongues. Well, verse 5. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, from every nation under heaven. Now, they, they were either there as visitors, they're coming to town, you know, maybe on business or whatever, or they are kind of folks who had settled there. And remember, when people settled in faraway lands, when you said goodbye to mom and dad, you said goodbye, we'll see you in another life. You weren't, you know, at, at Passover, you weren't flying back to see the family. Okay? You, were, you would forever be, for the most part, in this strange land, kind of with a strange tongue, with strange customs. Not that it didn't become comfortable at some point, a relative amount of comfort, but it wasn't home. Some of you understand that, right? I know. I know you do. The U.S., great. You know, U.S. is great. It's not home. It's not, and you know that when you meet someone else from your country on the street. They could be from 500 miles away, and there's this thing like, brother, sister, you know, it's like, we don't even, you know, we would have never passed each other, but there's something about that, right? So they're in this strange land, and verse 6 says, when they heard this sound, here's the scene, they walked out of the house. These people walked out of the house, and, and these other people were standing there who heard this commotion, and they had come to see what was happening, and, and the men and the women went out. What did they hear? A crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, 
Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? You know what happens when something happens that you can't explain? That you, it's just you have, there's no natural explanation. You, you come up with stupid answers because you've got to come up with something, right? You've got to explain it somehow. So they come up with a stupid answer in verse 13. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine, which always happens when the drunk walks out of the bar, you know, in the local tavern, and they could just about stand. They all start speaking in other languages, right? We know that. We've all experienced that, obviously. Listen, the Acts 2 tongues were people speaking in perfect dialect another language that was not offered in their home, in their neighborhood, or growing up in their high school. Never took that course. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this big chapter, but some very good exegetes in the Word think that Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, was identifying another type of or another tongue when he wrote this. He said, as I, we went over this chapter, the love chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Wasn't the main point, but he may have revealed something pretty important there. Tongues of men as opposed to tongues of angels. Now let me say, I want to clear up your curiosity right now that you may have, probably not, but maybe there's three of you that do. I do not, I have not, and probably never will have either variety of those tongues. I've asked God for them. And, and you know, uh, maybe I was disappointed here and there, and I go to myself, why are you disappointed? How, how dare you even be disappointed? You know, isn't it God that he says in, in Ephesians, who distributes the gifts, how? As he, what? sees fit, as he sees fit. No one person, and we've said this ad nauseum the past few weeks, no one person has all the gifts of, of the ministry ability of Jesus Christ, but we all have some. We all have some. If I don't have this particular gift, what am I going to kick and complain? God gives as he sees fit. Now, I know that there are some who see all references to tongues as of the first variety it is always, always, always a known language that's spoken by some people group on earth. And there are others who look at that and they say, well, you know, there's certain things that wouldn't make sense uh, interpretively. I have studied it fairly carefully and I see room for both views. And sp I am speaking as one who has exercised neither variety in my lifetime. But let me say again, let me tell you, I don't... I do know from Scripture what I think Paul is saying. There's a couple of things I do know. I don't know everything, but there's a couple of things I do know. Speaking as one who does not have the gift. If a man or a woman spoke in a language that no one could interpret, it may be something that is satisfying to one who is speaking. But listen, and this is Paul's point, what good is it? What good is it if it's not building other people up? Remember what Paul is saying in chapter 14. Worship is all about me, right? No, that's not what he's saying. Worship is not all about me. It is about helping others to lift Christ to a station that he should have in their lives and in the lives of others too. If someone exercises a gift of the Spirit, but there is no one there to profit from it, to interpret it to others, what good is it? What good is it? Imagine an army arrayed for battle on a vast open field. That is my blue-faced friend, Mel Gibson, from one of my favorite movies. Anyway, this fear, this anticipation of the clash of two great armies, it's seconds away. It is a reality. It's going to happen. There's no running away. All sorts of things are running through the minds of the generals and the platoon leaders and every single trooper. And could you imagine facing 100 yards away an array of battle-hardened veterans who are ready at the charge of the trumpet 
to charge to you and to try to kill you. And their muscles are tense and the anticipation is at a fever pitch. And their, their, their ears are straining for the trumpet, which is going to you know, kind of instruct them to charge. And all of a sudden, they're there and they're waiting. And all of a sudden, what they hear is something like this. That's the trumpet sound they hear. They're ready to kill people, and the trumpet does this. Now, I gotta tell you something. This ain't revelry. If they know it's not retreat, they don't know what it is. They've never heard anything like Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass in the 1960s. They just haven't. So as they're listening to this, these battled, hardened veterans are saying, what exactly are we supposed to do with this? Thank you, Herb Albert. That's, uh... They don't know. Why? Because they never heard anything like that, and there's no one to say, oh, listen, we changed the battle cry. When you hear that, that's the battle cry now. Mel Gibson would be standing there having a heart attack at that point, I gotta tell you. It says in verse 7, even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as the pipe or the harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? Though the trumpeter may be having a wonderful and enjoyable time, da-da-da-da-da, and if you see the, that's from YouTube, and Herb is like this. You know, he's just grooving, man. He's just grooving, and he's having a great time. Enjoyable time, that could happen, but it is only so many meaningless notes strung together for everybody else. It has no meaning. I spoke at a Chinese church a couple of weeks ago, and there was a translator present. And for some in that room, my normally eloquent, erudite, witty comments sounded like gibberish until the translator interpreted those sounds into meaningful, understandable language. Now, there are several things we need to note about this gift. Now, the apostle here tells us that the supernatural gift has certain characteristics about it, and they're very important characteristics, and he puts it positively and negatively. Again, as a non-tongue speaker, okay, we got, shake your head, you understand that, right? Okay, okay, this is what I see in scripture. Number one, Tongues are a public gift. They are a public gift. I can't find anywhere that tongues is, a, is spoken of in a private ma- as a private matter. Every manifestation of tongues in the New Testament, without exception, without exception, is a public demonstration. On the day of Pentecost, in the home of Cornelius, where many were assembled, in the synagogue at Ephesus, as referred to back in Acts chapter 19, these were the only three places where the gift of tongues was said to have been exercised outside of this one in 1 Corinthians 14, and they were all public manifestations. All public. Second thing. Tongues are not addressed to men. They are not addressed to men. He who speaks in a tongue, a language never learned, or a tongue of angels, is not speaking to men. Paul underscores that again and again. Go back. I don't have time to read the first 25 verses. Listen, when he speaks in a tongue, he is speaking, and, and nobody had it over Paul. Paul said, I wish you all spoke in tongues as much as I do. It's not like this guy, he's, Paul's not me. Saying, you know what, I, I, you know, I don't really have to give, but let me tell you what I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm the expert. He's saying as someone who spoke in tongues, and he says, you know what? It's always affirmative. It's always looking to God in a very positive way. You know what, you know what Paul's talking about if you read this chapter? He's talking about worship. When Paul spoke in a tongue, he was not teaching. He was worshiping God. That is an important thing to see. Tongues are never addressed to men. You find that in verse 28. The apostle is still speaking about the gift. He says, if there is no interpreter, someone who makes uh, uh, sense of the language, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself. In other words, keep it to himself and to God. 
Tongues are addressed to God and not to men. This means, of course, that the gift of tongues was never used in the preaching of the gospel. Apologies to my Pentecostal brethren. I get I love you. I love my family members that are Pentecostal I do. Okay? But it was never used to preach the gospel. Tongues are addressed to men. The account in Acts chapter 2 tells us that they heard them declaring what? The magnificencies, is that a word? The magnificencies of God. They were praising, they were not preaching. In fact, that is why Peter gets up a few moments later uh, after he interprets the entire event for the crowd. He then preaches, he then preaches the gospel to them. But they weren't preaching the gospels in tongues. And tongues were never used for preaching of the gospel. And listen again. Please, 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 please. I love my Pentecostal friends. I do. Some of my, my best friend in ministry is Pentecostal. Okay, I get it. We don't agree with stuff like this sometimes. But listen, do me a favor. Family members, friends, my, my brothers, please, please don't tell me that you, as well-meaning as you are, can help me learn how to receive a gift that is the prerogative of the Holy Spirit of God and His alone. Please don't tell me you can help me get that. That's all I'm saying, okay? That's all I know. I think that much of what we see today in churches does not fit in what we certainly know about tongues. And yet, let me rush in right here. It is a wonderful gift. To be able to praise God in an unknown language that edifies and lifts up all those who hear you praising God through an interpreter. How majestic, how powerful, how wonderful is our God. Is that a good thing? I'd say it's a good thing. Practical question then. Why isn't anybody speaking in tongues on Sunday morning on the cross in church? Anybody think that? Because the pastor doesn't have the gift. That's why. I said, no, no, that's not it at all. It has nothing to do with it. You know what it has to do with? It has to do with the fact that the first 25 verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it, Paul is trying to correct misconceptions and misuse of the gift. Don't argue with me when I make this statement. Don't argue with me because I'm, I'm not even going to hear it. No gift of the Spirit has been more misused and caused more division within the body of Christ than the gift of tongues. Just saying that, okay? And what we have decided to do is to seek the use publicly of what Paul calls the greater gift. Just letting you in on what we this is, I'm just telling you, okay? You, you can say that, that baloney, that's fine. I'm just telling you what we're about. You know what he calls the greater gift? The gift of prophecy. What did he say in verse 1? He said, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts. He's talking to the, by the way, he's talking to the whole community. He's talking to the community and he's telling, he's telling them, plural, you all need to desire all the gifts. Invite all the gifts to come to your church. Pray that God will bring. We don't have somebody who's really good at service. Nobody knows how to serve around this place. Pray that God will bring the gift in. You know what? I I cannot tell you the joy I felt when I taught a new members class. Had to be about eight years ago now. And we took the spiritual gifts test. Everybody in the class, it was a large class, all had the gift of giving. I was like dancing out of class that morning. I got to tell you, I never had that before. They all had the gift of giving. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We needed people like that. We really did. Okay. So where am I? I don't even know. Anyway. Okay. Yes. So, so you know, 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, why don't we, you know, it has been misused. And, and, we, and he says in verse, uh, verse 1, Father, we have love, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially, especially what? Prophecy. Prophecy is not telling the future. Let me just get that out right away. Okay? The closest word that I could come up with that everybody will understand and I think is pretty good is preaching. Is teaching. Teaching slash preaching is a little heavier on one or the other. I don't know which it's heavier on, but preaching, teaching kind of thing. Why prophecy slash preaching? Well, verse 3. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. See, now Paul describes the gift of prophesying. It has a threefold effect, okay? Well, number one, what's the first thing he says? It is to strengthen. It should, it, 
it builds people up. The, the Greek word is oikodomen. In the Greek, oiko means house, domen means building. To build a house, to build a foundation. That's the idea. The work of prophesying gives people what? A foundation. A lot of people didn't have good foundations yesterday. Yesterday was a bad day for them. I gotta tell you, especially that car dealership. Uh, did you see it in Route 10 and the cars were floating and this? Anyway, uh, it, it talks about this foundation. Why do people feel, why, let me ask you this. Why do people feel that they have been kicked out of the family when they sin? They sin and they think, well, it was a good run, but this, you know, and I've got the little stuff here and there, but this is, this is way too big. Why are they emotionally torn apart when they struggle against sin? Listen, because they do not understand their identity in Christ. Why do they think that it doesn't matter on the other side how much they sin? You know why? Because God is all forgiving and God is gracious and God will forgive as far as the east is from the west. Grace, 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 grace. It's because they have never been taught that there is a God in heaven who loves us but who also is a jealous God. And he is a holy God. And he is determined to make his sons and his daughters like him. So if they think that God winks at their sin, they are wrong. And they are walking on the thinnest of ice coverings. You see, you know where that comes from? Teaching. That comes from teaching. Sometimes people just don't know. Prophecy helps to alleviate the up and down experience. Christians are like this. You know what? Not good teaching. Sometimes it's not good teaching. It's just not good teaching. Sometimes that's all it is, okay? But what does it also prophecy do? It encourages. That's the word from which we get, our, you know, the word paraclete, which is one of the titles of what? The Holy Spirit. He is the strengthener of God's people. It means, this word, to support. It means to encourage. It is, one, it is to call one alongside of. This is the literal meaning of the term, to support to steady, to be there. Folks, in every group and in every gathering, like this one, there's some pretty discouraged people. Don't say amen. Okay, you don't got to say amen. Pretty discouraged people. You came here discouraged. You came here broken this morning. I know that is true. This was a week of broken dreams. This was a week of plans gone awry. This was a week when you faced your failures in a very unique and a very debilitating way. It's a week when all the courage, any courage that you might have had, by Tuesday it leaked out. By Wednesday, you were on your own. In a way, and in some measure, you, by hearing the truths of Scripture, by reach, receiving a bracing word of testimony from God's word, you have your tank refueled. Just a little bit. You get your tank refueled. You refueled with courage. And then when that happens, you know what it means? It means that the spoken word, the preaching, the teaching of God's word has done what it's supposed to do. I know that a man and a woman must be humbled. I get it by, by, by showing them their sin. But it's the gift of prophecy that does not end in pointing to sin but pointing to grace which conquers all, even when we miss the mark. Here's the third thing. The word brings comfort. This painting, I don't know if you've ever seen this painting before. It's by an English artist by the name of Walter Langley. It was painted in 1894, and it has a rather long title. And the title comes from Tennyson's poem, In Memoriam, one verse of which reads... That loss is common, would not make my own less bitter, rather more, too common. Never morning wore to evening, but some heart did break. Every day, every minute, there's a broken heart. Someone who's devastated. Someone who never thought they'd have to face this, but now they are. These are what Virgil, the Roman poet, once called the tears of things. Paramuthian, 
That word means to empathize, to put yourself in the place of others, to understand the pressures that they are under as best you can. It means to be able to feel with them and then come alongside of them and comfort them. And comfort them. It is said that a preacher must comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. See, that's what prophesying slash teachers and teaching does. You can see how useful and how important it is to have this exercise in a local church. Now, aside from strengthening, encouraging, and comforting, the preaching of the word does other things too. And the, the prophesier, the one who teaches, uh, Paul wrote in verse 24, but if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin, they are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. The one who utters the spoken word has the capacity to do several things. They have the capacity to be used of God to convict men and women of their sin. Folks, I have to say this. We need this. We just need this facet of preaching that we hear too little of because it is unpopular and it makes people uncomfortable. And you know what? Maybe we'll go down the block because, you know, love, grace, 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 love, 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 grace. Okay? I think it is one of the great missing elements as I continue to study the modern-day American church. How in the world can you ever receive grace if you don't know why you're receiving it in the first place? How can you start in the New Testament with the gospel when you haven't first gone through the Old Testament and see a, a people who are slaying, killing countless lambs, countless sheep for the forgiveness of their sins, which was temporary, the writer of Hebrews says. How can you ever get to the New Testament and the gospel and, and you're panting and what, what hope do we have? And you get to the New Testament, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. See, the prophesier, and when prophecy is done in the gathering of the people, they're confronted with their sin. And then they're brought into judgment. If the prophet is led by God's spirit, if he is led by God's spirit, the spirit through his words will convict people that he or she must answer for their sins. And you know what? Maybe it's not going to be in the next 12 hours. Or maybe it's not going to be in the next month. Most people live life with little or no thought to its logical conclusions. I am convinced 100% of that. And the last time I checked, the death rate in ancient times, as in modern times, remains about the same. 100%. 100%. We will all die and one day stand before the righteous judge of all the universe. It is throughout the scriptures. Prophecy does something else. Prophecy that is spirit-led will lay bare hearts. That, you know, many times our hearts are too busy to even consider the true motivations of our actions. Do you ever find that? Like, I'm doing stuff and I'm going, well, I think I just kind of partly lied to that person. But now, you know, I wasn't even thinking about it. It was just, yeah, well, yes, whatever. You know, the check is in the mail type of thing sometimes. And, and you go, what, 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 you know, I, 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 it's like, what, what's my motivation for that? God's, God helps us take a step back and lays my heart bare. Someone said, there is none so blind as those who will not see. James in his epistle likens the word of God to, you know what he likens it to? Mirror, mirror on the wall. He likens it to a mirror. Folks, we can lie to ourselves continually. We could listen to the crowd in our amen corner. We all want an amen corner. Al, amen? All right, all right. I got my corner there too. All right, I like it. I love my corner. Love my corner. Okay? And we gather people around us who will just, you know, a lot of times, I'm not saying this about that, but you will just tell us how wonderful we are, how, you know, you do it. Oh, you, you, you. There was a, another great, great pastor who fell recently. And it's coming to light that, you know what? He had nothing but amen people all around him. All amen people. And they weren't telling him the truth, and they weren't watching his life. They were just telling him, you're doing great. You're doing great. Keep going. 
We can lie to ourselves. A mirror is not designed to lie, unfortunately, right in the morning, unfortunately. It tells the truth. And the preaching of God's word and the teaching of God's word, if it is led by the Spirit, will lay our hearts bare. And I got to tell you something. This all sounds pretty awful. I mean, you got conviction and judgment and hearts laid bare. Sounds awful. Guess what? It is. In large measure, it is. The great hidden truth that so-called prophets and preachers in our day often skip is that we have offended the living God by our rebellion and by our sin, and a reckoning is coming. There is coming a day when the record will be set straight, a day when all rebellion, all insurrection, and the entire global insurgency, which began in the Garden of Eden, will be put down once and for all. And the insurrectionists will be punished, and God will gather his own to himself to live forever in eternal peace and eternal security. The day is coming. And so, there's one more thing that prophecy and teaching does, Paul says. It brings us to our knees. It brings us to our knees. So, verse 25 says, they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. See, this is the goal of prophecy. This is the goal of teaching and preaching. The sign in Dante's Inferno, Italian means hell, that greets those who are about to enter for eternity reads this, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Abandon all hope. Once you walk through this gate, there is no hope. It's gone forever. And the Bible says that there are some that will be in that horrible reality. Listen to me. That is not the end game of prophecy. That is not the end game of teaching. It is just the opposite. The gospel is preached to men and women and tells them not that there is no hope, but there's lots of hope. Hope is, is blossoming. And it tells us that so that no one will have to meet that terrible reality. Lamentations chapter 3 says this, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. William Barclay wrote this, when a man has faced God and faced himself, all that is left for him to do is to kneel and to pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is the only prayer that we will have when confronted with who we are. But listen, when we pray that prayer, God doesn't say, all right, let's... Let's wait a month. Let's see what, how you do over the next week or two. Clean up your act a little bit. You know what? Your language. I've been noticing some stuff. You know, we'll see how that all goes. No, you know, Luke, Luke 15 says, in, in the story of the prodigal son, that the son who went away, when, he, when, when the father caught a glimpse, just a glimpse, every day he's looking down through town to see if perhaps that figure that left so many years ago will make a reappearance. And all of a sudden he sees that appearance. It's his son. It's, it's thinner than he'd ever seen him. His hair was a different color. He looked different, but he knew instinctively. The father knew, and he picks up his robe. And what does the scripture say? He runs. He runs to meet his son. That is what we will be met with when we come to God through Jesus Christ, and we say, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what we'll be met with. It's not about me. It's about we. This whole worship deal. Okay. One more thing Paul touches on. The social movements of every age, as you look at it, seem, it seems to be used by God to force Christians to re-examine, sometimes even clarify their understanding of what the scriptures teach. Now, sometimes, you know what? It's worked in a, in a negative way. 
the, the culture is heading one way, and so we as Christians kind of get nervous about it, and we start looking at Scripture, and we start saying, well, you know, well, we, well, I don't know if we're going to do that. You know, maybe it's something different, and, you know, and, and, and when we start denying the Scripture that we reportedly believe in with all our hearts. But sometimes, listen, sometimes what's going on in the greater culture, is God in charge of the greater culture? I believe he is. Sometimes what is going on in the greater culture, like this, this, this Me Too movement, you go, oh, folks, let me tell you something right now. Me Too is coming to a local church near you. Not to say anything, hopefully not here, but I'm telling you something, it's coming. The culture has brought out the sins of, first it was Hollywood, first it was, and now, you know, we have the Catholic Church thing, now it's coming to the evangelical church. I'm telling you right now, uh, God help us and God get us ready. But you know what? It's coming. The culture literally had, I think, a positive effect for us to start looking at ourselves. Start looking at, 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 at guys who are in positions and women who are in positions who are bulletproof or who think they're bulletproof. It's a good th- See, sometimes it's a good thing. Um, I think the reexamination... A lot what's going on, uh, uh, a lot of times it can make us stronger. And in fact, you know what it could do sometimes? It can make us clearer on what the Bible is really saying. Now, you got to be careful. You know, let's not, you know, because sometimes you could, you know, uh, we want to be part of everybody, and you start leaning over the wrong way. you got to be really careful. That's why you need people to talk to. You need others to hold your feet to the fire. I think this is the case in women's role in the church. It has forced us to distinguish carefully between attitudes towards women derived from customs and traditions of the past and what the Bible actually teaches and what the culture actually did. Now, we can say that the New Testament clearly indicates nobody's, I, I, hope, I hope I made this clear. The Bible clearly indicates that both men and women receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit without distinction in regards to sex, including those are the gift of teaching, uh, prophesying, basically preaching, teaching, exhortation, wisdom, knowledge. Women prophets are referred to both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The older women were instructed by the Apostle Paul to teach the younger women. Do you remember what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 4 and 5? He suggested, no, he didn't suggest, he said that both men and women were free to pray or prophesy in the house church meeting of the believers there in Corinth Though the women must do it in such a way as to indicate, we talked about this, indicate that they recognize the headship role of their husbands, those who were married. If she does so, there seems to be no objection to the fact that men would be present in the gathering or any limitation placed on her for that reason. From the viewpoint of spiritual gifts, it is clear that in Christ there is neither male or female, Galatians chapter 3, and God expects Every woman to have a ministry as much as he expects every man to have one too. Though the ministry of women in the New Testament churches is not prominent in the records, nevertheless, there are certain references which indicate very frequent and clear, widely use of their capabilities. Every commentator, every commentator, every expert in Scripture looks at Priscilla and her husband Aquila, side-by-side companions uh, of the Apostle Paul in his work in Corinth and in Ephesus. And of the two, Priscilla seems to be the more gifted and the more capable teacher because she's always mentioned first. It's not like, ladies first. That's not what it did. The, the, the greater among the teachers was, was listed first. They were together. Together they instructed the mighty Apollos in his early preaching efforts. Here is a clear-cut case of a knowledgeable woman being used in the teaching of a man. And the Apostle Paul has no hint of objection. None. Okay? No hint. Then he writes this. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, this is the passage (laughs) that has caused many people to write the Apostle Paul off. They regard him as a bitter, old, misogynist bachelor, you know, who's, who's, you know, kind of threatened by the exercise of women using their gifts. The thing that I scratch my head over, though, is that in so many places, when he talks about the women and their giftedness, 
there is a definite, a palpable love, a palpable respect, and a deep gratitude for the gifts of the women in these other places. So what must have happened, I decided, is that after chapter 11, they went to lunch. He had a big matzo ball soup kind of thing. He was really tired afterwards, and he forgot what he wrote, and then he wrote that that's not what happened, okay, when he got to chapter 14. You know, God forbid if we think that, you know, Paul is contradicting, or the scripture is contradicting. You know what? Did Paul practice or not practice what he previously preached? I don't think so. Andrew Wilson, biblical scholar, talked about two different kinds of teaching. What I refer to as capital T versus lower T teaching. Capital T teaching, he says, involves the definition, the defense, and the preservation of Christian doctrine by the church's accredited leader. Who are the church's accredited leaders today? Who are the church's accredited leaders today? The crossing. Thank you, me, but the elders. The elders of the church. That's why we take such care in choosing our elders and making sure that they understand the historic doctrine of the faith and they will not deviate from it, that they have been tested, they have been through the mill a couple of times. See, that is the most important thing that this church can do is to make sure that it's leaders that are safeguarding the truth of the Holy Scriptures are stable. That we can trust them. Capital T, teaching, according to Andrew Wilson. And then there's a lowercase teaching. It's kind of a, you know, talking about the Bible and church meetings, explaining the scriptures to others, peer-to-peer way, you know, according to their giftedness. Tim Keller, who I have hard re- high regard for, as you know, uh, basically teaches essentially the same thing. This is what Keller said. He said, elders are leaders who admit or dismiss people from the church, and they do quality control of members' doctrine. These are the only things that elders exclusively can do. Others can teach, disciple, serve, witness. We do not believe that 1 Timothy 2.11, which says essentially the same thing as what we just looked at, or 1 Corinthians 14.35, precludes women teaching the Bible to men or speaking publicly. To teach with authority refers to disciplinary authority over the doctrine of someone. For example, when an elder says to a member, you are telling everyone that they must be circumcised in order to be saved. That is destructive, non-biblical teaching, which is hurting people spiritually. You must desist from it or you'll be asked to leave the church. That is teaching authority. It belongs only to the elders. Now, Keller is not scripture, but I essentially understand and agree with what he's saying. Remember something. Paul was addressing the disorder that was prevalent in the meetings of the church there at Corinth. What did he say in verse 33? Remember what he said in verse 33? He said, for God is not a God of disorder, but what? But a God of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. What was Paul's concern in chapter 14? That the gifts given to each member of the church be used to edify To build up others in the body of Christ, conduct yourselves when you meet, when you get together, so that Christ will be central and Christ is lifted up and that every member of the body will be able to experience it. If you're going to use your gifts, you make sure you're using it that way. To that end, tongues and prophecy were to be controlled as well as members who are not properly exercising their gifts, as it seems to be the case in a number of the women in that church at Corinth. The apostle was not concerned about women who properly exercised their gifts in prophesying or praying, but was greatly concerned about women who disrupted the meetings with questions and comments that were challenging the teaching of apostolic doctrine and were contrary in their views. He was real concerned about that. Listen, the Jewish community... Uh, to a large degree, the Greek community, 2,000 years ago, they put women down. I'm not going to start making quotes. Google it. You know, what is the view of women in Jewish, you know, just do it later, okay? The Jews absolutely did this. They did not allow women to do anything. Here in, in the Christian, you got this Christian church now who permitted the women to minister under the recognition and principle of headship. And as a consequence, some of them thought, well, this is pretty cool. You know what? And you know what? I think I'm going to talk about this, and we're not sure about that, and we're doing this and that and everything. And Paul looks at this, and he says, you know what? You got, you got a problem on your hands there. You got a big problem on your hands. 
The meetings were being turned into debate and discussion groups, and it had become, Paul's words, a shameless situation. Paul says that at home is where these lengthy discussions and debates ought to take place, not in the main church meeting, or, can I say it, in life groups. Just a little, little advertisement, you know, for the life groups, i got to tell you right now. Why? Because it doesn't edify. It gets off track. It digresses from the purpose of the focus of the ministry. That's what he's warning against. Can women teach? Certainly. They are given the gift of teaching as freely as they are given to men. In fact, i got to tell you something right now. I have met a lot of couples where the wife is much better versed in Scripture. If I was going for an answer, I wouldn't go to the husband. I would go to the wife to find out her opinion. That is an indictment. Guys, I'm sorry. Forgive me, guys. Don't, don't smash up my car, please. Do anything. You can hit me, but don't hit my car, please. Okay? Just, just uh, uh, This is an indictment of us that we do not know the word where that our wives can come to us and say, I don't know. And it's not that you're the answer man. No one expects you to be the answer man. But you know what a good answer would be? I think it might be this, but I'm not sure. Why don't we look at this together? Or, or give me time. And you know what? Let me get back to you on that. I'm going to seek God. I'm going to seek the Holy Spirit. Why is it important for God's people to be together? You know why? So that they can hear from God. People need to hear from God so that they could do what? They could lift him up to his proper place as the entire body uses their gifts in worship and praise together. Our giftedness is not to enrich our own spiritual experience, but to enrich others. It's not about me. It's about we. My gifts are not about me. They're about we. And to the measure that I use them to enrich the spiritual experience of others and helping them put God in the place that he deserves to be in their life, to that measure will I experience blessing. The reason so many of us do not feel the joy and blessing is that we have not realized that it's not about me. It's about we. It's about we. Can we worship God anywhere? Yes, but God has designated that we be together on a regular basis to experience his presence and his goodness and together to use our gifts to give freely that which we have been given so that others can praise the same as we do. Because it's not about me. It's about we.